What's happening, friends? This is Ryan Miller. Welcome back to another Brew Theology podcast. On this episode, we have Tink Tinker of the Osage Nation, the author of Red Skin, Tanned Hide, a book of Christian history bound in the flayed skin of a Native American, also the author of American Indian Liberation, A Theology of Sovereignty, along with a number of other books. Uh, Tink has taught at Iliff School of Theology since 1985. This episode will not disappoint. Uh, We had Tink at the pub a few months back. He had a really busy summer, and so did we, so our schedules finally made sense, and we had a great night with a few friends talking with Tink about culture, worldview, and why Tink does not believe in a creator. And so if you like this episode, any episodes, please just do us a big favor. Go on iTunes or wherever you listen to these podcasts, rate it, review it, and then share it online with your friends. You can go to Twitter. We're at Brew underscore Theology. Also Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology. Check out the website, brewtheology.org, and look at different ways in which you can partner and possibly sponsor us. If you'd like to make a donation, go to the donate page. There's a Patreon page in that as well, and we would uh, greatly appreciate any gifts uh, from your end. Thank you for listening. Enjoy this episode, and I will see you soon. Peace. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast, and I'm Ryan. I'm with Janelle, Dan, Megan, Rob. There might be others that walk in tonight because this conversation is going to be fun. We had uh, Tink Tinker at the pub at Chain Reaction a few months ago, and he's back with us after a busy summer on our end and on your end. So good to have you, Tink. Good to be back. Yeah. So, uh, before we dive into tonight's topic, which is about worldview culture and why I don't believe in a creator anymore, and I'm not speaking for all of us, but specifically for you, um, and I think that maybe some of us in here at the end of this uh, might feel that uh, that same way, so depending on our metaphysic and what it is and what it may be after tonight's session. So if you're listening tonight, I will say that uh, this specific talk at the pub uh, was probably the one that had my head spinning the most because I am a Western white man educated in a Christian worldview. So this, uh, we're going to slow this down, take this, um, take this slowly at first, and then we'll dive into some deeper stuff. So before we get into worldview and the difference between that and ideology, can you give us a bit of your background? And I know that you have a really interesting background based on both uh, the Osage Nation, American Indian, and also from a Christian background as well. So can you tell us how you became Tink Tinker after all these years? I'm a citizen of the Osage Nation uh, from the Bald Eagle Clan and the uh, Honka or Earth Division of the Osages. That locates me spatially in an Osage world. I'm what's called sometimes a mixed blood in the Indian world. That is, uh, my father was Indian, Osage. And my mother was Lutheran, uh, which is its own ethnic heritage in North America, you know, Northern European. So I had to sort through both of my parents in order to become an adult and walk on my own. So I spent the first part of my adulthood sorting out my mother. That was the Ph.D. Uh, in, in in Christianity, the Ph.D. in Bible, New Testament, theology. Uh, And that's what enabled me to move beyond that and leave it behind. Uh, Why I took a Ph.D.? I'm a slow learner. Uh, 
I got hired at ILIF in 1985 after deciding that I would not serve a church and probably wouldn't find a teaching job. And I suspected I was going to spend the rest of my career running an urban Indian center somewhere on the continent. Iliff stepped in, and here I am 32-plus years later. Uh, Iliff has been a great school for me to sort through my own identity uh, and my own intellectual development. They gave me the room to do what I needed to do and never forced me into their own liberal Methodist uh, mode of existence. When I finally announced in 1993, when my book Missionary Conquest was published, that I would no longer call myself a Christian, my faculty's response was, what took you so long? <laughs> That's great. How many years ago was that? 1993. 1993. Uh, you don't have to do the math. I'm, yeah, that's another one of those, you're a Christian devices I left behind. Yeah, it's so funny. We're always like, how many years and how much time? And we're going to get to talk about time and temporal and spatial later because that's a big part of this conversation. So to start off with talking about culture, and you say this, and I'm going to quote you, that you say culture, hence worldview, derives from the vast set of habitual behavioral responses to the world. These responses are largely unconscious. Our more conscious responses tend to be rooted in the particularity of ideology. So will you further speak to the differences between worldview and ideology for those who think that those are the same thing? Because I had a conversation with a friend about three weeks ago at the pub trying to explain this, and he said, I still don't get, get it. Tell, like, so just break that down simply so people can understand ideology and worldview. People, you're a Christian people, and maybe today at this late stage of colonialism, all of us tend to live in a Newtonian universe. Physics has moved way beyond Isaac Newton, but we still walk across a second-story floor as if it's going to hold us. Even though there's this little thing about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in terms of the behavior of electrons that maybe one time in a trillion times a trillion, the floor is not going to hold and will pass through to the ground floor and maybe even to the center of the earth. But we tend habitually to live in that Newtonian universe. It's kind of like speaking. Uh, language is a communal, consensual act. We don't think through how we're going to speak the next sentence. We speak. We don't pause and reflect on each word choice unless we're functioning in a language that is not native and we're just learning it. And then you might have a dictionary in hand and still make 10 mistakes per paragraph trying to develop you know, a coherent discourse. Language is part of worldview. It's part of culture. Uh, those behavioral habits, and that's just one example, one simple example, because our lives are filled with behavioral habits. Uh, my daughter's eight. 
she's out running with other little kids in the neighborhood. We live in a townhome, so there are lots of kids on the green belt. Those kids see a, an insect, and their first instinct is to swat it, kill it, especially if it's a spider. My daughter has a different reaction to spiders. Her upbringing's been different. Her habitual response is to look for maybe a paper cup and a sheet of paper to cover the cup with so she can capture the spider and safely transport it outside. You know, we don't kill spiders uh, for, for some perfectly good reasons, but it's a part of worldview, part of habitual responses to the world. You know, when I go to Denver March Powwow down at the Coliseum, uh, you know, around the spring equinox, there might be 2,000 dancers out in the center. And we welcome all comers. We, 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 you know, we encourage non-Indians to come out for intertribal dances and dance. Not not the competition dances, but for those they don't have to dress. And some of them do dress, and it's perfectly easy to sit up in the stands and differentiate between Indian, non-Indian, just in terms of the movement of the body, because you know the movement of the body is so habitual that... that uh, the two groups don't even recognize that they're dancing differently sometimes. Especially white people don't recognize that they're dancing differently from Indians. They're just dancing the way they're used to. And it looks more like disco than traditional Indian dancing. That's what I mean by habitual responses to the universe. Now, that translates into banking and economics into having a job, into looking at the world. Uh, it's the perfectly natural thing for Euro-Christian people to see hierarchies everywhere in the world. To see a hierarchy in their job place. They have a boss. They might be supervisor of some other employees so that the hierarchy works from the top through the middle and down to the bottom perfectly natural because that's the way it functions in their church that's the way it functions in politics, in government uh, Indian people have to learn to deal with that hierarchy because our world is more collateral egalitarian as uh, one Indian scholar here in Denver puts it there are no bosses in the Indian world there's no one to tell you, you have to do this. Yeah, and so that was one of the distinctions, and I think that was an aha moment for a lot of us at the pub, when you had said the word that the white man used is chief, which wasn't, isn't even an American Indian word, and it's not, we think, oh, it's the person in charge, and then you said something different, which was? Yeah, the chief has a number of duties. In fact, among Osages, uh, we're... we're better than, than, than white people even imagine. We always had two chiefs. 
two Gallegas, our word, who lived across the road from each other in the middle of the village and took turns every other day being what you all call in charge. Like having Donald Trump on Mondays and Hillary Clinton on Tuesdays. Can you imagine, everyone? There's there's a silence right now. <laughs> so are, are the, the Gallegas, if I'm saying that correctly, um, it can be male or female or... Traditionally in our culture, they were male. Uh, that doesn't mean they had a great deal of authority because they didn't. Their job is to reflect back the consensus of the community. That's all. And once they quit reflecting back consensus, they may find themselves out of a job. Because you see, our cultures, there's another hierarchy right there. Men over women, right? Over children. Not in the Indian world. In fact, our cultures tended to be matriarchal, matrilocal, uh, so that the man moves to the woman's lodge, lives in the woman's clan, and if there's a divorce, the man is really in trouble because he loses all the status he had because his status was through his wife's clan. Yeah, the, so the worldview is the air that you breathe. It's the behaviors you wake up with every day. You don't think about them. My daughter, because she lives in my house, because we live in our parents' house, unless we've changed, lives a certain way. Now, ideology is different because we can think about that. We can change that. We can somehow, like, uh, to use the word, you know, changing of our mind, metanoia. <laughs> I'm going to repent, Lord, right, in our tradition. of oh, the way I used to think, I'm going to think this way. But still, the worldview is is the same based on any kind of repentance, so to speak, or changing of one's mind. It's impossible for one individual to change that person's worldview single-handedly. What people can do is work towards ideological change, and maybe a generation later it will transfer into a bit of a worldview shift. But ideology is a matter of choice. In the Euro-Christian world, a Presbyterian can leave the Presbyterian church and join the Baptist church. They have ways of facilitating that. Either way, leaving the Baptist and becoming a Presbyterian. You know, Lutherans have uh, an adult study class or confirmation class that they put people through to become members of their church. That's ideology different theological, denominational ways of thinking and unpacking, you know, the Christian, uh, the, the Christian ideology, the Christian mythology. Uh, 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 one can leave a political party and join a different political party. Those are ideologies. But it's still the same system regardless. That's right. In yeah. fact, I would argue that communism, Marxism, is simply another ideology within the Euro-Christian landscape, just as democratic capitalism, an, a polar opposite ideology within the same worldview. Everyone's thinking about this. If you're, if you're listening right now online, like, you can pause it, go back, and like, what did he say again? And then we'll continue. Janelle, you have a, you have a question? So uh, some of us in the evangelical tradition 
uh, were trained in apologetics and worldview studies in the late 90s, early 2000s. And in that um, narrative, the worldview was basically set up as Christian or not Christian. Um, can you kind of just to give us a little more information, like break down how that's not not what you're saying about worldview, exactly. that you're saying that it's something mm -hmm. bigger than that. I've read that uh, evangelical literature, and I think they're misusing the, world, world, the word worldview completely. They're talking about ideology. Uh, and, and surely evangelical Christianity is its own ideology or set of ideologies because even that little terroir uh, has several... Yeah, many different, perhaps, uh, micro-ideologies within it. Uh, but that's an ideology, Christian, non-Christian. I would argue, from my perspective, and I put it this way in the notes I handed out last spring, even the argument, God versus no God, atheism, is the same worldview. Because in order to be an atheist... Well, one of my colleagues at the University of Denver claimed to be an atheist and then escaped, wanted to escape my critique uh, of Euro-Christianity as a colonizing power. And I said to him, Witakwala, friend, you may be an atheist, but you're a Christian atheist. That's the only way you can conceive of your atheism, is to stand it over against something else. So God, no God, or just two different ideologies within that same Euro-Christian worldview, if I may. Whereas Indian folk, traditionally, collateral egalitarian, there is no guy in the sky. There is no a, a higher power. No, it's all on the same level as us. We are, in other words, what some people might call non-theist. But even to pose us as non-theist grants that there is a theism somewhere that we stand over against. We never thought of a higher power uh, somehow in control of our lives or directing our lives until colonization came and with colonization, the missionaries. Are there a certain number of worldviews that you might propose? If we look at the globe as a whole, uh, you have the Euro-Christian worldview, the Native American worldview. Are there a, a couple of others that you would identify? I haven't put a lot of energy into that. Uh, it's clear to me th th that Islam and Judaism share worldview similarities with Euro-Christian uh, because they are also hierarchical. There's all there's that guy in the sky, you know, the the, the Christian male sky god, as it were. Uh, Buddhism is called non-theist. Uh, that has a lot of worldview similarities with American Indian indigenous worldviews, but not quite. So maybe that's a separate worldview, but I'm not a Buddhologist. Um, 
I, I, I know when I talk to a lot of my Asian friends, and I've got a son who lives in Asia, in Taiwan, you know, a lot of what they talk seems to fit with our American Indian uh, worldview, the Chinese notion of yin and yang is um, somewhat similar to how we see the world. So it may be that indigenous people do share a common worldview, because I do find a commonality with other indigenous people wherever I go in the world. You posit this difference between the Euro-Christian way of the, uh, it's a top-down hierarchy of, it's mostly patriarchal, it doesn't have to be, but usually like it's like the CEO, president, senior pastor, and then the peons underneath. Even though we say they're all important, they're all the same, we all know that there's a pecking order. And then you talk about this collateral egalitarian model, which my my soul, when I hear that, I'm like, yes, that's the way that's the way it should be. Do you see benefits of of both models in society? And is there a way because we all live together in this Oh, this pluralistic um, world where, I mean, Denver's got a little bit of everything. Is, is it possible to have those living together side by side and doing life together? That's a tough call. That's really a tough call. I'd like to argue, in terms of balance and harmony, that the indigenous worldview is the only way to get there. Uh... My students, your Christian students, find that, as you do, incredibly appealing, but they can't live it. Even if they want to say to me, that's exactly what I believe, I have to come back to them and say, it's not the way you live. Uh, probably it's not the way Indians live in the city either, because we have to have jobs, and in order to have jobs, we've got to pay attention to, to, to direction from overlings and give direction to underlings. So I've got a president and a dean at ILF that I have to pay attention to. Is, is there a way in which communities and families, though, on a very small scale, that they can create that? Because, I mean, I feel like, for instance, my wife and I, we've, we've tried to really try to live in that kind of a worldview because I, I came from a Southern Baptist tradition, and that was one of the reasons why I left that as a minister, was when we, we were engaged, and we looked at each other going, this isn't making sense to how we think and, and how our values are, and I think that women should be able to preach, and I don't think that I'm over you. And uh, so, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm the primary caretaker of our daughter. I stay at home. We, we've never had an issue of who makes the money. She clearly does now, but we don't hold that over each other. There was a season where I did, and... Uh, I, w I would like to believe that we're in that now. So can, do you think families and local communities and faith communities can operate that way? I think it's imperative that well-intentioned people begin to adopt ideologies that move in that direction. That's all it is. It's not a worldview. It's a new set of ideologies that you're trying to put in practice within a family system. I think it's imperative that, that, that people start doing that in small communities at the family level. It can't be done at the individual level. It has to be some sort of communal nexus like a family, but absolutely imperative. And then maybe 
your kids will grow up with a slightly altered worldview and keep on doing that. And, and you know, worldviews change so slowly that it, it requires a great deal of patience and farsightedness. Don't give up on it. <laughs> yeah, no, we still get strange looks at times like, oh, you stay at home with the kids. And I'm like, yeah, it's, that's the 21st century. <laughs> well, that's been my life, as you know, Ryan, uh, the last year. So I, I have a question. Um, so you were, you know, you're, you're, you're going in and you're explaining all of this about the differences between like, you're a, you're a Christian is a term I believe that you used. Is that correct? You're a Christian? I use Euro-Christian as a uh, sociological descriptor, okay. not a theological descriptor. Okay. So, okay. Um, well, so, so I'm just curious, um, in, in a lot of, like, a lot of, like, Abrahamic-based religions, there's, there's always adversity. There's always, like, the dark and, and the light. Like, there's always adversity against good, and that's how you know the good is by adversity, there's opposition in all things. So is that something that's kind of found or somehow taught, whether it be just like an outlook or a sense of, I don't know, what in, would encourage preparedness in, in, in your culture? Interestingly enough, it's written back into our cultures mm -hmm. by anthropologists and missionaries but they have to falsify our traditions to read it back in. It was totally absent in Indian communities. The, the, the Manichaean struggle between good and evil, which is at the foundation of, uh, of the Euro-Christian worldview, it's at the foundation of U.S. foreign policy, for instance, mm -hmm. totally absent for us. Mm -hmm. Is there good and bad? Yeah, the, the worst thing you can say in Osage is something is busy, busy, bad, uh, untasteful, not evil. If you tell someone that's busy, they've got to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. You've given them that opportunity at least. Uh, There's no struggle between good and evil. There's merely balance and harmony. Now, are there different sorts of Wanagi energies around us in the universe? Yes. Yeah, Barbara Mann's written a great book about that. When you said, you said Wanagi, can you define that for our no. listeners? Did you say no? <laughs> I did say no. You did say yeah. no. I mean, it's, it's complex. You, you're Christians want to use the word spirit. The spirits. And Barbara Mann uses the word. But the problem is, spirits get defined as something immaterial, right? We're thoroughgoing materialists. The Wanagi have material form. It's just in a different world from ours. Uh... So they may appear to us when they, when they come to us in ceremony in a more ephemeral way. But that doesn't mean they are immaterial. Yeah, for, for I guess a little bit of context, I'm, I'm familiar. So I'm Puerto Rican. I'm from Puerto Rico. And 
and, and the Taino have the, the semi, which is, they also, white people <laughs> translate as a spirit, but the semi always was, was something that you could see and experience. So um, you have Yokahu, for example, and the semi for that is the mountain. So it's a sacred mountain. So it's both something spirit-like, but it has spatial immediacy, if you will. Yes, that's right. Um, so on, on the topic, we talked a little bit about why the indigenous worldview in general, um, that it would be good for Euro-Christians perhaps to go in that direction, but ideologically. I think ideologically is the only way to approach it. Mm -hmm. And so how how can a, a Euro-Christian person do so while avoiding the problem that that I've seen among especially younger Americans that, that are aware of this problem, uh, the cultural appropriation problem. <laughs> That's a serious problem. Um, the problem is, and I get a lot of students at ILF that I would class as new age, new age practitioners. Yeah, I, I figured you'd see a lot of that at ILF. <laughs> um, they, they come up to me in... in Q&A during speaking engagements. The problem is they're more Christian than anybody else. They're radical individualists. They're out to enhance their own spiritual well-being through this self-help program that they call Native American spirituality. See, we don't even have a word for spirituality. We don't have a word for Native American either. <laughs> Those are all colonizer terms. Uh, no, I would warn people against just picking up the surface structure of somebody else's stuff. Sure, anybody can blow smoke. That doesn't make it a medicine. See, when we burn sage, it has particular meanings. When, when New Agers burn sage, they're burning sage. That was actually one of the things that I was going to bring up because I, I have friends that they're aware of, of the fact that the indigenous, again, in general, the indigenous worldview is, is a better worldview for, for humans and for, for non-human um, um, life. And they end up in the trappings of, of a different type of colonialism, which is this problem of cultural appropriation. Yeah. So they go yeah. buy some sage uh, or a smudge stick or whatever, they burn it and they're doing whatever with it. But it's like you said, they're coming from this individual standpoint and they might even do it in community, but it's not true to the spirit of, of indigenous culture. Yeah, it's... Uh an attempt to satisfy a longing of the soul that probably can't be satisfied that way. They, they become more experts at what we do than we are. Uh, you all know about this protest of the uh, crude oil line that is now tunneling under uh, the lake up on, on the Missouri River 
at Standing Rock, the DAPL, Dakota Access Pipeline. Back in November, the, the elders in camp up there was got bitter cold. They had a blizzard by late November. Decided to have a water ceremony. And they called that ceremony to happen at the communal fireplace in the middle of camp. And one white woman who knows more about this than we know ourselves got really frustrated and upset because if it's a water ceremony, it ought to be down by the shore of the lake where it would put the health of all kinds of people at risk. See, that's a presumption of knowledge that comes from that kind of misappropriation. It ain't even close. So what this person needed to do is slow down and just pay attention to the elders and quit asking questions and certainly quit giving directions. Uh, I was at Four Winds uh, American Indian Council uh, near downtown for 25 years as you know the spiritual elder and director. A constant stream of New Agers come in, and they would all want to come in and offer take over leadership positions within a month or two of being a part of the group. You know, and we welcomed everybody. Yeah, you can come and be a part of this, but remember, as long as it took you to become a white person, it's going to take you that long to become not a white person. You've got all that 32 years to unlearn. So when you're 64, maybe we can talk about this a little bit. But right now you need to sit by the campfire and just listen. So it's a process of, of listening and observing this, the, the way of indigenous people and then bringing that back and seeing how that ties to your own worldview and changing ideal, ideological structures within your own worldview into that direction so you're kind of aiming at the right thing. Good point. People who want to become American Indian are just being Christian individualists taking care of themselves. If they're not going back to their community and working with their community, um, they're no bueno por nada, no good for anything. So um, I, my great-grandmother was a full-blooded American Indian, but I don't have any connection to that anymore. What um, nation was she? Chippewa Ojibwe in Michigan. And so I guess it just what, what Dan asked kind of triggered, like, what should you do with that? If you know you have the heritage, but actually I don't have much connection to knowledge or experience at this point in my life um, what is an appropriate way to learn more and to kind of embrace that piece of history that I need to learn more about first off I've all uh, oh, 20 years ago wrote an essay in which I defined being Indian as cultural competency not blood we've had full bloods come into four winds visibly they look full blood but they were adopted out at birth 
and raised in Arvada or Littleton, Centennial, pure white values, but they've been the target of skin color racism all those years. So they come to us, they want back in. And we can't shut them out, but I have to tell them the same thing. You've been white for 36 years. It's going to take you that long to unlearn whiteness. Uh, and we're sorry what happened to you. And we're here for you. We'll take you in. But you've got to sit and listen. Now, I'd encourage you to follow up on that without any romantic notion that somehow by this time next year you're going to be uh, thinking Anishinaabeg. Uh, it ain't going to happen. Uh, but I tell all my white friends, those with some Indian heritage and, and those who are pure-blooded, you know, Norwegian or German, we need our allies. Come learn as much as you can because Indians aren't going to change this world by ourselves anymore. We really need our allies. And that means you all have to learn and make these small ideological changes along the way. But be clear that that's all it is. So, so you would suggest, I, I, so would you suggest like going to a council like, like you, you're mentioning Four Winds, like um, for others to find <laughs> such organizations in other areas, would that be the key or how else should one go about doing that? Yeah, Four Winds has been the go-to place. Uh, American Indian Movement has always had its allies here in Colorado. Uh, they've been out with us to protest Columbus Day, you know, October after October after October, going back to 1989. Uh, we value those allies enormously. Um, I think uh, there are some young women taking over the American Indian Movement as you know, leaders of AIM right now who are reviving that protest. Uh, uh, check them out. Get to them through Four Winds because you know, they all kind of, Four Winds is where they meet. And that's at Fifth and Bannock, an old church building there. A place formerly called church. But with no princes. Yeah, I've I've I, I've I've heard a lot about these about these protests. Even um, I have a, a friend that's from Massachusetts, and he's pretty close to where Plymouth Plantation is. And how every Thanksgiving there's usually protests and, and things of that nature. I remember hearing that as like a six, not or not six. I think it was like nineteen or so. Um, and thinking like, wow, like who like where do these people come from? And yes, of course, knowing I'm, I'm from New York. And so I grew up learning about the Iroquois and Algonquin and Mohonk and all that. Hearing about protests is, I think makes the, makes the individuals that are, that are, have lived this. And this is part of their history so much more real. Um, Cause quite honestly, I don't think I would have, um, and I don't mean this in any insulting way, but I don't think I would have had as much interest or cared as much to know if people weren't out there, they're protesting at Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts on Thanksgiving. Like, um, 
I don't think it would have been brought to my attention as much um, mm-hmm. as a as a New Yorker. I mean, I only learned about you know wigwams and things in in fourth grade, and that's like Iroquois. It it didn't ever really feel real until I learned more about all these protests that would happen in New York and and um, a friend taking me to a powwow and um, like wow these these are still individuals that are that are relevant like they live in this same landscape and they feel the rain like I do and all this it's so much more real when you hear people um, taking action they do it all over that's an important reason for our continuing protest movements it does help to begin the process of educating a larger public but it's also function to educate ourselves the siege at Wounded Knee in 1973, began the process of educating a lot of Indians across the continent about their own Indianness. I've had countless uh, men and women my age, we were younger then when they told me this, who said, 1973, wounded knee. That's when I became Indian. And they may be full blood living in a full-blood community. But it was that protest movement at Wounded Knee that gave them the courage to stand up and be Indian. So that's worked for us as much as it has for our non-Indian allies. I'd like to talk about time, if we could, not just our time here, but when you speak about time and when the Euro-Christian worldview speaks about time. And then when I go back to even seminary as a Christian pastor, we talked about the chronos, you know, chronology, sequences of time versus the kairos. That was the word. It was like this moment of time where there was a big event where God showed up or we realized that God was already there, whatever that was. But then you talk about the spatial versus this temporal. And I mean, how, how would you how would you break that down in a way in which people can understand? Because it's that that one to me, I think practically, is the most difficult. Because I'm always looking at, at this uh, this temporal, this chronology. Even though I want to believe in in the spatial being more important, it's it's nearly impossible because we all like we we all we all look at the time like on the podcast. If you're listening, you're like, what 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 time are we on? We're at 40 minutes. Okay, when is this over? Everything's about time. In the Euro-Christian world, the habitual response to the world is a temporal response. Everything's about time. Uh, Place or space is a subordinate category to the temporal. Uh, Imagine making the military-industrial complex work without time, without a project time plan. How fast are we going to do this? Without some sort of clocking device to measure the time that a, that a grunt laborer puts in to work on the project so that you can pay them for that hour of work. Everything is based on time. Ceremonies are based upon time. I tell my students that I love for training for Christian ministry, you better learn 
how to put together a liturgy, including a sermon, in 59 minutes and 59 seconds, or you're going to be out of a job. The bishop's going to have you out in Cheyenne Wells near the Kansas border. Uh, and if you're Catholic, it's worse. It's got to be 44 minutes and 59 seconds because you have masses on the hour, right? Whereas at Four Winds, we start when people get there and we go until everyone's done talking for, for a ceremony. They might go two hours. Uh, after 9-11, the ceremony went three hours and 15 minutes before everybody was done talking. Uh, people say that in, in the Indian world, we say Indian time is a stereotype. It's a racist stereotype. Our meetings always begin on time. When everybody gets there, that's time. And they end on time. When we're done, that's the time. Uh, the important thing is space, place, the relationship between the, the, the earth and the moon, the earth and the sun, the seasons, and there are particular places where we go, where we know we can summon the Wanahi in that place, whether it's a mountain or a river or a lake or a particular tree. Those places are the important places that we go to. And Fifth and Panic became one of those places. I think this is one of the things that drove me absolutely crazy when our family lived in Dominica in the Caribbean because we would say, so when's the plumber coming? I mean, or 10 minutes. And they'd always call you, oh, we'll be there in 10 minutes. Well, 10 minutes could have been 10 hours or the next day because the sun was still going to rise and was still going to set. And, the whole, you know, it's okay. And so then when you would meet somebody along the road and they were actually doing business, it wouldn't matter because it was about you being present with them and it wasn't even about the transaction. It was like, yeah, you bought their bread. They were happy because they had to feed their family. But ultimately, these people, they wanted to connect. And uh, that, that broke me in, in, in a good way and bad way because it drove me crazy because I was used to like, we got to get stuff done. And so Rob's over here. He's, he just joined us. Rob understands what I'm talking about because we live in, in the Caribbean at the same time. Ten, everything was 10 minutes, 10 minutes. But it, it, it allowed us to actually slow down and, and breathe a little bit. And I feel like that's, if there's anything that we need to do, especially in our uh, polarizing, crazy, we can't, um, we go, 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 go. Um, we, we need to breathe more and, and look at each other in the, in the, in the eyeballs. And, and, I, and I spent 32 years teaching at Isle of School of Theology where my classes had to start on time because they had to finish on time because another class needed the space because of scheduling. And so I, I could not be that relaxed with my students, even though my own rhythm might be, yeah, we'll start when everybody gets here. We only have, you know, 110 minutes to get this whole thing done, you know, two 50-minute hours. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the eclipse? It seems like this might be an intersection of, of, this, of this question in that we thought about it as um, it's, it's going to be in August and it's on this date and it's at this time and we need to leave Denver in time to get to the place to see it. And then we have to think about how long it takes to get home. And it, it's this science thing. We can describe all the scientific <laughs> parts of it and what it does, 
um, what are the different views that that uh, Native Americans would have on an event like the eclipse, even though we can't explain it scientifically now, how does maybe it show us the difference between time and space? Well, everything has to do in the Indian world with relationship. All these things out here beyond these walls are my relatives. You're my relatives, but so are the trees and the squirrels and the robins, uh, not to say the buffalo and the, and the eagles. They're all my relatives. Relationship. The Wanagi are relatives. I sent out a food to feed them. It's relationship. It's not some hocus-pocus of feeding the spirits. It's sharing to build and maintain a relationship. So if I have a particularly spicy green chili, I'm thinking of my mom and dad. They both like that stuff. I put it out for them. Uh, relationship. We keep those relationships going. Well, the sun and moon are relatives as well and relatives of each other. They're constantly engaged in a dance with one another. And who we are on this earth depends upon our relationship to the moon at any given point, our relationship to the sun. You know, so the change of seasons is an incredibly important time. Uh, we had a moon on the 21st of December, oh, I can't remember, more than a decade ago, there was really a special moon. It was a full moon on the 21st, and it was one of those moments where the moon is the closest that it comes in its orbit around the Earth. So it's huge, bright, and we were being reminded by the elders that more than a generation and a half earlier, relatives up north knew that moon was coming and chose that night, because it was a night like daytime, to launch an attack on a U.S. military position very successfully, I should add. Unexpected, because Indians don't attack at night, right? Uh, well, when it comes to defending the homeland, sometimes you violate even those strictures. So the, the, the solstice is one of those special moments where you're in a special alignment with the sun and the moon. Uh, different people see it differently, experience it differently, feel the power differently. But there's a certain power that comes when the moon moves in front of the sun. Thank you. One of the things you mentioned about your particular worldview is this relational aspect of, of seeing you as, uh, or seeing yourself as interconnected with, with everything else. And within the Euro-Christian worldview, there's a strain of thought 
of process theology or open and relational theology. And I, I th- if I'm not mistaken, I, th- I think you shared with us on, on that night that you spoke a critique of that, um, if you'd be willing to share. I believe I did. C- could you share that with us today? Um, John Cobb is a very special human being, a, a real gentleman. When a couple of us critiqued process theology at a conference, a very small conference that Cobb and others hosted at Claremont School of Theology where John taught, his colleagues got really angry with us. It was on creation. And they expected the two Indians, the two African Americans, the two Latinos, and the two Asian people that they'd brought in as guests to help them affirm and further clarify the common creation story. What's a common creation story? Well, for for process theologians, to, to cut to the chase, it's the Big Bang. Well, it's a perfectly nice story, but it's not our story. And, and some of us, two of us, the other Indian guy was across the room from me. We got up almost simultaneously. And I looked over at John. I said, John, can somebody get us a cab to the airport? I think our work is done here. You, you all have this figured out. And it doesn't have anything to do with us. That's when his colleagues got mad, and he had to calm them down, and he had to ask us to hang in there and sit down and explain why we weren't buying into his common uh, creation narrative. Well, the main problem is that's a temporal framework. Process theology is a temporal schematic And I finally got a process theologian who was on my own faculty to agree suddenly out of the blue one day, take your right. When Whitehead says space, he means time. (laughs) The the reason I asked you that is because I'm I'm, I'm fond of process theology, but then again, I I grew up in this Christian framework, and uh, at least in my mind, it's... It's a step in the right direction ideologically um, to see ourselves as relational beings and to dismantle this idea of a hierarchical deity. And um, it's kind of a step in direction into that more egalitarian mode of being. Um, But I think you're right. I, I agree with you, too. I think it is a step. And I don't want to disavow it entirely, uh, but it ain't what indigenous people are thinking. It's not quite what we had in mind. 
Yeah, that kind of goes back to like the pluralistic the discussions that we have about how, well, you know, you got Buddhists and process, you know, theologians, and you got these, you know, American Indians and Hindus, and they're all I'm like, yeah, but they're all very particular. Let's just be honest that we're all very particular in what we believe and think, even though there are some commonalities, but it's the whole like mountaintop, like, no, it's still, we're not going to end up the same top of the mountain because there's different mountains going on here. <laughs> and that might be just a really bad metaphor anyway. So uh, any last questions or thoughts, comments before we end the night? Really quick one, um, and it's really not that deep. Um, I'm just wondering, I have, so I have these like really, I'm such a millennial, gosh, I have these really awesome moccasins that I bought from some little store in Pennsylvania, and I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry, but I just really want to know if I'm being like totally rude by wearing these moccasins that I bought from this little like store and they're like full leather and they have like uh, sewed in like bead eagle and they have like these emblems on it and it's it's from this like it's out of the out of the Pocono mountains anyway I wear them and they're like really comfortable and I don't know was is that like offensive I just want to know because I don't want to do it if it's offensive I have the same kind of question. I, I bought these Keen sandals, and, and they're really, really comfortable. I wear them even in the winter time. But, but am I being offensive as an Indian by wearing Keen footwear? Keen. It's a brand. Keen's a brand. Oh, I've got them on oh, now. Oh, okay. No, I just go barefoot. Sorry. No. <laughs> um, no, I just didn't know if it's like they have symbols. Like you notice people will wear like... Like people wear uh, I think um, you're okay. Kabbalah bracelets and they'd have like no idea what Kabbalah is. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. I, I think they're, we live in such a mixed up crazy universe that, that, that there's no way for me to be pure, to be only Indian. I mean, I try to put on a choker when I go out. This is my dad's bracelet. I wear that. That's my mother's ring. I wear that. Uh, my dad's belt buckle. But I got these blue jeans on. They're not Indian. Well, they've become Indian. So that that's my uniform. 32 years that I left was blue jeans for, for, for state occasions, you know, graduation ceremony. Oh, take. Professor Tinker's the one over there in blue jeans. Uh, back when my faculty were all wearing, you know, the de rigueur AAR uniform of slacks, sport coat, white shirt, and a tie. Uh, yeah. Just remember, Indian people sell those things to make a living. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is a rabbit trail. Speaking of making a living, and this is something that was put upon the American Indian people in certain, whether it's Oklahoma or, well, across the entire nation, let's be honest. What is your thought, and we can edit this out if this is not okay, what are your thoughts about casinos? Was that a respectful silence on my part? Uh, I was asked... 30 years ago, when I was new at ILUF, to come down for a consulting fee to help the New Mexico Council of Churches design 
a political project to oppose native gaming in the state of New Mexico. And I asked the director of the Council of Churches, what is it about treaties that you fail to understand? About 30 years ago, Indians began, nations, tribes, began to find a loophole in the law because their state, they're, they're inside of a state, but aren't, don't come under state governance at all. They only come under federal governance, and the federal government had no laws on gaming. So they began to open casinos, leaving the states just enraged in no small part because they couldn't tax it. I don't think it's a panacea. I think it's hurt a lot of Indian people uh, and, and helped erode their cultures even more. But I'm not in a position to tell them they can't do it, especially if they've found a way to work the white economy against itself. Uh, other nations, White Earth has a casino. There's no payout to members. They use the proceeds to fund programs. The same is true of my nation. We have casinos, but none of that ends up being paid out uh, to, to, to members, citizens. It's used internally to fund the Osage Nation uh, self-governance. Thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, to, to end the night, one of the... By the way, if I can just add... Yeah. Indians gambled traditionally, going back a thousand years. We had different kinds of gambling, uh, uh, you know, games that we played, uh, and, and still do. They're still traditionally played on reservations. Hmm. You had uh, some. You've had some students at the seminary who've been um, completely. Um, just mesmerized, and um, they, they've been fascinated with your work, and they want to help out uh, the Osage Nation or other tribes as well. And so they come to you at the end of their of their time, and they said, well, you know, what can I do? And you said something that, that really stuck with me. Can you can you just say that as we end? Because I, I felt like that that to me was it goes what back to I, it goes back to worldview and culture. What did I say to you? You said they said, well, we want to go for two years to be like on mission. And you said, well, why don't you go oh. for five years and you sit and you listen? What I tell them is, try not to say anything the first five years that you're there. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, try not to say anything. Because if you're not just listening and watching, you're being white. You're explaining the gospel to them. And maybe you just need to sit and watch for five years and then think about maybe an appropriate short two-minute sermon you might give within the culture. Because the relationship is there and now the five years doesn't matter because it's not about two or five years. It's about the space that you shared. Oh, thank you so much. This was so good. I, I appreciate your time and yeah, yeah, we would uh we'd love to have you back if you come back to the pub too. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Good to be with y'all. So good to learn from you. Cheers. 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 Thanks.
Thank you, friends, so much for listening. If you like this, please share it online. And also go to the website, brewtheology.org. We love doing what we do in the pub every week in Denver on a Thursday night. And we would love to see you do it in your city, your town, your suburb, through whatever ministry or non-ministry, whatever friends or future friends that you may have. What we do around the pub every week creates a dynamic conversation. We believe that we are changing ourselves and the world and our communities one conversation at a time, eyeballing the person across the table. Like Tink said in this episode, it's about being present, that space between us. So thank you very much, and I will talk to you soon. Peace.